It really is good to see you. This morning's one of those nasty kind of mornings, you know, where uh, it's quite easy to stay home. But I'm glad that you are here to be with church family, to worship our God, to hear from his word. And I uh, just want to add my word to Matt's. Way to go, Houston Astros. That was awesome. I'm kind of with Matt, you know, and I, I've told some of you all who love baseball, I rank baseball, it competes with me, fishing when they ain't biting, as maybe the most boring thing in the world, except for, I heard one amen, except for playoff baseball, and thank you very much, and when the home team is in it, that makes it all the better, so... Um, I was up here last night working on my sermon just a little bit, but then got home about the fourth inning and watched every pitch till the end, and it was awesome. This morning, we continue our study through the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone. This morning, Christ alone. Next week, to the glory of God alone. And as I was thinking about this all week long, um, how to begin this sermon, one idea just kept coming back. I don't think it's the best of ideas, but I, I couldn't come up with any better. If you've been around here a while, you know I love the story in John chapter 6, where Jesus is teaching some, some hard truth that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And some high truth. That if you want to be his follower, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. You're like, good night, what does that mean? And as a result of that heavy and hard and high doctrine, many who had been following Jesus went on home and were no longer following him. And Jesus turned to the twelve and said, are you all going to leave also? And they looked at him and said, Lord... Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. They realized that some had found somewhere else to go. But they saw something in this man. They heard something in this man. They knew something of this man that they said, where else are we going to go? You, you alone, have the words of eternal life. Today's topic feels a bit similar to that, in particular thinking about salvation. We often call it justification. Justification, if you're kind of new to that idea, is that act of God whereby he declares a person righteous. Not based upon their own righteousness, but based upon two things, the forgiveness of, of the person's sins because of the death of Christ and the imputation, fancy word, forgive me, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to their account. You and I need at least two things. We need our sins to be paid for. And we need a righteousness that we don't have. And the good news of the gospel is that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, both of those things are provided. 
Jesus goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and thus paves the way for the forgiveness of our sins. They're taken away. And his righteousness is counted as ours. It's an amazing thing. The reality is that many have chosen other ways to pursue that right relationship with God. Among those who believe in some sort of God and in some sort of afterlife, which is the vast majority of people throughout history and the vast majority of people even in our day, some have chosen paths to the exclusion of Jesus. He doesn't enter the mix at all. We might think about the other religions of the world that do not take into account the person and work of Jesus Christ. They are seeking a right relationship with God, salvation to the exclusion of Jesus. And others, we might say, have chosen paths with the inclusion of Jesus, but with something else. Christ is good and all, but maybe Christ is not enough. And so to Jesus and to his person and to his work, some will add their own good works to that mix. Yeah, I get what you're saying about Jesus. And yeah, I know the story. And, and if you will, I tip my hat to Jesus. I'm so thankful for him. But I know that at the end of the day, it's going to depend upon me. If I've been good enough. If I've obeyed God enough, if my good outweighs my bad, and so to the person and work of Jesus, one's own efforts is added to the mix with the hope that in the end, that will settle the matter. Jesus started, but I got to finish. Jesus got me down to the one yard line, but I've got to get it across the goal line. And still others, in particular, I think, in many ways, this is what the reformers were reacting against, is that not only do some include Jesus, and not only to the inclusion of Jesus do they add their own good works, but they will even and might add the good works of another. So that one's hope of salvation... And right relationship with God is dependent upon Jesus, yes. My goodness, yes. And the goodness of another. Within the Catholic tradition, the veneration, the elevation of saints. And even Mary, the mother of Jesus. They will look to others and the merits of their righteousness in hopes of helping them in their pursuit of salvation. Within Catholic theology, it's called veneration of the saints. And they would make a difference between what they called latria, 
That's the worship that one would give to God alone. And, and dulia, that's the veneration that one would give to the saints and to Mary, to those who, who lived such a godly and a holy life that they are worthy of veneration. And so sadly, within that tradition, when they will see icons of these saints or relics of these saints, they will bow to them or they will do the sign of the cross before them, sometimes even pray to them. We know the story of Martin Luther from a few weeks ago when the lightning bolt struck. He didn't call out to God. He called out to St. Anne. St. Anne, if you save me, I'll become a monk. John Calvin was one of the great reformers. He said the distinction of what is called dulia, the veneration of the saints, and latria, the worship of God, at least in Calvin's perspective, here's what he said about it, was invented for the very purpose of permitting divine honors to be paid to angels and dead men with apparent immunity. And so some, when it comes to how do I enter into a right relationship with God. Some will look to places to the exclusion of Jesus altogether. Some will include Jesus, but it will also include one's own good works and maybe even the merits of another. The foundation, the hope of one's salvation is based upon Jesus, myself, and the merits of the saints. But then here stands the biblical Christ. the eternal Son of God who for us and for our salvation became a man and lived a life of complete obedience to his Father at every turn and who then went to the cross to die, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people, to pay the penalty for what we had done, not for anything he had done to then rise again from the dead in victory, to ascend to the Father's right hand where He is right now, reigning and ruling, arms extended in mercy to any and all who will come to Him. Christ and Christ alone. Where Will you go? Is it right that you and I should say, where else are we going to go? You have accomplished my salvation from beginning to end. I need no one and nothing else. I only need Christ and Christ alone. Or should we be looking beyond Jesus? to our own goodness, or even to the goodness of another. Obviously, the Reformers said Christ and Christ alone. Were they right in doing so? I hope your fingers are ready to go, because we're going to look at a handful of texts quickly. Turn first to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. 
And as we begin to look at these texts, just to be candid, I leaned heavily into Pastor John Piper this week. It's was pondering on Christ alone. These are texts that he highlighted. That these are the kinds of texts that the reformers were going to when they were highlighting the idea that it is Christ and Christ alone who is the foundation of our salvation. It is Christ and Christ alone through whom we are made alive to God and through whom we are now made right with God. The Bible says that you and I were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But through Christ we've been made alive. The Bible says that you and I were under the wrath of God because of our sins. But because of Christ, there is now no condemnation. We have been justified, declared righteous before God. And this was through Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, we'll start in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He entered the holy place. In, in this context, the author is speaking of heaven. And he shed his own blood. This was not the blood of goats or of calves he died and he shed his own blood and he did something once for all that produces an eternal redemption he entered the holy place once for all having obtained or another translation thus securing eternal Redemption in this one momentary act, the death of Jesus Christ, so something so magnificent was transacted between Jesus and his Father. It can be said that he, he did it once and he did it once for all, and what he did has eternal implications. There is nothing to be added to what he did. Jesus came and he accomplished this salvation once for all. And in that one momentary act, he, he produced something with eternal ramifications. There's nothing that we're waiting on to be added to it by you or by anyone else. His blood is of infinite value and his redemption is of eternal duration. Show you another one in Galatians chapter 2. So back to the left, a handful of books. Galatians chapter 2. 
verse 21. The Apostle Paul, in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Last week and a bit this morning, we've said that we need righteousness and we don't have it. The reality is that God demands righteousness, but no one of us is righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul says... In verse 21, if the righteousness which we need comes through the law, then what Christ came and did was of no purpose. If your righteousness and the righteousness which you and I need is secured through our keeping of the law, then why in the world did Jesus come and live and die and rise in our place and for our sins? You and I cannot add one bit to what Christ has done. Paul is saying that our works, our efforts, don't add one thing. And if indeed they did, then Christ died of no purpose. Still in Galatians chapter 5, a few chapters over. Galatians 5 verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. There were some in Galatia coming behind Paul. Paul had been there and preached Christ and led many to faith, planted churches, and yet false teachers came in behind and said, it's good that you've trusted in Christ, but now you need to be circumcised and keep Jewish diet code and keep Jewish holy days. You must add to Christ the keeping of law. And Paul says, if you receive circumcision, circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. It's all of Christ or none. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. If that's the way you want to go to earn your righteousness before God, the circumcision route, the law route, then what you must do is keep the law perfectly. And of course, Paul knows that no one can do that. Thus, he was urging upon them salvation by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone, with no addition of works. 
I think Galatians 2, Galatians 5 are reminding us again that there is nothing that you and I can add to our salvation. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn our salvation. And by implication, there's nothing anybody else can do for us. It is Christ and it is Christ alone. Show you this one. Go back one book to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One book to the left, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. He made him, that is, God the Father, made Jesus Christ the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He bears our sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So Christ bears our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He bears our sin and we bear his righteousness. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We have sin. And who bears our sin? Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves, but we receive a righteousness. Whose righteousness is it? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. You and I cannot improve upon our standing before God because we receive the righteousness of Jesus, which is by very nature, the righteousness of God. What is the foundation of your right standing before God? Is it your goodness? No. Is it somebody else's goodness for you? The answer to that is yeah, but it's Jesus. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. He bears our sin. We receive his righteousness. Here's another one. Go two books to the left in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 and following. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. That's Adam in his sin. If by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the, the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So we receive this gift of righteousness. We don't have righteousness in and of ourselves. It's a gift that we receive. And it's owing to an abundance of grace. And it's through the one, Jesus 
Verse 18, so then, as through one transgression, Adam's, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness. I think that's summing up the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ into one little phrase. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Paul, on what basis is any man made righteous before God? The obedience of the one Christ alone. One more look in Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How awesome is that? Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Those who are in Christ Jesus, we are, we are free from the threat of wrath, of judgment, of condemnation. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, how did that come about? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, what that means is that by the use of the law, by, keep, by, the, by the pursuit of keeping the law, no one could come to a place of no condemnation. No one could reach that same place through the keeping of law because we are weak sinners for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. What did He do? He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. How do you and I move from a place of being under the wrath of God to being in a place of there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? How does that move take place? God sends His Son Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. And Jesus goes to the cross. And in that work upon the cross, sin is condemned in His flesh. That's how it happens. That's the basis. That's the foundation of our salvation. It is Christ in Christ alone. 
We sing it every once in a while. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground. How's it go? I got it written down. Firm through the, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. My hope for you, my hope for me, is that you and I would be a Christ-loving, Christ-exalting, Christ-consumed people. That we would be a people who, as we like to say, joyfully follow Him and help others do the same. People who joyfully follow Jesus and help others do the same. Reading a book this week on discipleship and it was fun to see this man, this author, build his definition of a disciple off of Matthew 4.19, which is a verse that we use around here. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. He said a disciple is one who follows Jesus. And he said that's, that's somewhat of, of, of head. That we come to understand who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done for us and what he is calling us to. And by God's grace, we submit ourselves to him. Come, follow me. And I will make you. This author pointed to that a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is not only one who's, if you will, with their head, has come to understand who Jesus is and what he has done, and they submit their lives to him, but then they are being changed by him. I will make you. They've put themselves under his tutelage, and that's somewhat of heart. I want to follow him. I want to be like him. I want to learn of him. I want to understand who he is, what he's done, what he's calling me to be. And I want to be transformed by him. That's a disciple. It's one who with their head has submitted their life to him. And one with their heart. Make me who you want me to be. Come, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Disciple is also one of hands. Who wants to follow Jesus into a life of service and of blessing to others. This past week, Tara and I had a real blessing. If you've been around here, you know we speak about our strategy or our map. Worship gatherings, 
discipleship groups, service teams, and mission circles. Right now you're in a worship gathering. We hope it's a real blessing to you week in and week out. We, we also hope that every one of you will be in a discipleship group, whether it's a men's group or a women's group or co-ed community group. You'd be in a smaller group setting where you can encourage one another and pray for one another and comfort one another and like. Worship gathering, discipleship group, and then we would love it if every one of you would be on a service team. It's the fuel of all that happens here at Redeemer whether it's in kids' ministry or student ministry or worship ministry or greeting ministry or men's or women's, wherever it might be, using your gifts and your abilities to be a blessing to our church family and to our city. And then finally, mission circles. We want all of this to have a come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. When we talk about mission circles, what are those circles? My circle, our circle, and the world. My circle, that's where you live, work, play, and passion. We try to encourage you to take a look at your circle, where you live, work, play, and passion, and realize that it's no mistake where you are and who the people are in, in, that, in those places. And we encourage you to bless them, to begin with prayer to listen as you ask good questions, to eat with them, to serve as opportunities arise, and then to share the story of how God, through his grace, has changed your life. Well, one of the people on my circle list, he's one of my neighbors, and I pray for him often. And just this past week, he and his wife had a marital spat, and a pretty good one at that. It was kind of funny. She came home from a deal. They had been kind of having this spat over a couple days. And then she came home and he wanted to talk about it some more. And she didn't want to talk about it right then. And she said, well, or uh, I think he said, well, then let's go over to Mitch's house. And she said, okay, then let's go. And I was going up the stairs and I saw at the window, I saw her coming. I yelled down, hey, babe, so-and-so is about to come to the door. I thought she was, you know, coming to ask for an egg or something. But she was moving fast. And then all of a sudden, he was right behind her. And I thought, oh, goodness, what is going on here? And so Tara met him at the door and quickly realized something was up. And so she took the wife out on the front porch. The husband and I went out on the back porch. And it didn't, it didn't register with me until after, but Tara said, babe, you've been praying for him, and I often pray for her too. You've been praying for him time and time and time again. Maybe this is just part of what God's doing as we seek to bless our neighbors. That was an encouraging story. A Christ-loving, Christ-exalting, Christ-consumed people. And I say that, I mean a people follow him, being changed by him, and are seeking to join him on mission. Maybe you're here today, though, and you don't know him. Maybe up until this point in your life, you have sought salvation from 
Salvation with God apart from Jesus. Or maybe you're here in the middle. And yeah, you've heard the story of Jesus and maybe you've tipped your hat, but you were banking on your good deeds to be the thing at the end of the day was going to put you over the line. It is Christ, and it is Christ alone. He has accomplished salvation. For those who will turn away from themselves and trust in him. We talked about that last week, that, that faith in Christ is taking hold of Jesus. It's receiving Jesus, but it's non-contributory we don't contribute to it at all. It's active in the sense that we trust in him, but it's a completely passive thing because he does it all. He's the basis of our righteousness before God. He's the basis of our salvation. We receive him. We trust in him. Not in ourselves. Not in anyone else. We trust in Christ. I would urge upon you today, if you never have, that God is great. And that you, just like me and everybody else in the room, have sinned against God and fallen short of his glory. And the righteousness he demands you have, you do not have it. You need someone to pay for your unrighteousness. And you need someone who has lived a righteousness to give it to you. And lo and behold, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has done just that for those who believe and trust in him. He has died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And through trusting in him, his righteousness is counted as yours. And in that transaction you become right before God reconciled to him adopted into his family he loves you he gives you his spirit and he promises he will never leave you nor forsake you and you will be with him forever and forever let's pray Another song we often sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, any here today who've been leaning on another frame as sweet as it may have seemed to them, help them to see through your word 
I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That they would turn from themselves, turn from their own efforts to earn your salvation, to deserve your salvation, for none can. It is all of grace. And they would cast themselves upon Christ and Christ alone. In the Lord, that all of us who name the name of Christ, that we would live for him. We would follow him. Be transformed by him. Serve him all of our days. And oh God, I pray that you would use us in the places where we live, where we work, where we play, where we're passionate about, to be a light of the gospel, a light of the love of God, wherever it is you take us. Use us to lead others into the life-giving joy of following Christ. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well,